Well, if you've ever been on vacation to Estes Park, Colorado, and Rocky, National, Rocky Mountain National Park, or to Yellowstone National Park in, in Wyoming, you've probably heard and likely have even gone across the Continental Divide. The Continental Divide is that place in our country where all the rain that falls on one side of the mountain or the hillside eventually flows to the Atlantic Ocean, and the rain that falls on the other side flows to the Pacific Ocean. It's kind of a dividing line, and if you're on one side or the other, it takes you in a certain direction. Well, that's what we have here today as we come to Acts chapter 13. We have a dividing line. We come to the second half of the book of Acts. The first half of the book in chapters 1 through 12 revolved around the conversion of Jewish people and the church in Jerusalem and the apostle Peter. Now, starting in Acts 13, the second half of the book revolves around the conversion of non-Jews, the conversion of Gentiles, and of the church in Antioch, and of the Apostle Paul. The author of Acts, Luke, has been preparing us for this turning point in the history of the church. In Acts chapter 9, he told us about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. Paul, one who had been a principal enemy and attacker of the church, had come to Christ and now proclaimed the gospel. In Acts chapter 10, verse 1, to chapter 11, verse 18, the Gentile Roman centurion Cornelius and his family and friends had come to Christ through Peter. And then Peter went to the mostly Jewish church in Jerusalem, and they came to embrace the Gentiles as fellow believers in Christ. Then in Acts chapter 11, verse 19 and following, Luke showed us how the church in the Gentile city of Antioch was formed by those scattered abroad after the killing of Stephen in Jerusalem and how the church grew under the leadership of Barnabas and Saul. These three stories of Saul's conversion, of the Gentile Cornelius' conversion, and the founding of the Gentile church in Antioch all set the stage for Acts 13 and the subsequent expansion of the gospel throughout the Gentile world by the three missionary journeys of Paul, recorded in Acts 13 to 20. And that is followed by Paul's journeys to Jerusalem and to Rome in chapters 21 to 28. Let's cross that divide now and read with me the scripture starting in Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work of which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. We have now returned to the church in Antioch, a mostly Gentile, that is a non-Jewish church, located north of Israel in what would today be the country of Syria. And highlighted by Luke is the fact that there were now present in this church prophets and teachers. And he included five men who helped us see the diversity of the church in Antioch. Barnabas we've mentioned before. He is from the island of Cyprus. He is a Jew who has come to believe in Christ as Messiah. He is a respected figure in the Jerusalem church and is now ministering in Antioch. There is also Simeon. His is a Jewish name, and he is most likely a man with a dark 
a dark complexion, perhaps a black man from Africa. Lucius is from Cyrene, a city in North Africa in what today is the country of Libya. Manan is described as the close friend of Herod. Not the Herod mentioned in Acts 12 that God judged and executed, but the Herod that ruled the region of Galilee in northern Israel during Jesus' earthly ministry. Finally, mentioned last in the list is Saul, a Jew from the city of Tarsus in the south-central region of modern Turkey. Thus we have men from Africa, Cyprus, Palestine, Asia Minor, and even one who was trained under one of the leading rabbis of the day in Jerusalem. That was Saul. At least two and probably three of these are Jewish believers. The others are Gentiles. Luke tells us they are worshiping and fasting. The word worshiping here implies they were somehow praising and bringing glory, glory to God by serving others in the body. Some versions of the Bible actually translate it as serving. They were also fasting. Fasting was a common activity in Jewish life and was usually associated with prayer and often a prayer for guidance from the Lord. It is only mentioned one more time after this in the New Testament, and that's in the next chapter. While they are worshiping and fasting, the Holy Spirit comes to them and gives them specific direction. They are to set apart Barnabas and Saul for a special work. And after spending time praying and fasting, the direction is clear. For the leaders of the church in Antioch lay their hands on Barnabas and Saul, indicating their approval of and the giving of their authority of the church to these two as they set off. There is no doubt they go on this missionary campaign for the gospel with the clear direction and support of the Holy Spirit and the church in Antioch. Let's read, starting in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was the proconsul. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. The year is about 44 AD. It's at least 10 years since Saul's conversion on the Damascus Road and eight years since he and Barnabas first met in Jerusalem where Barnabas introduced Saul to Peter. And here they head 15 miles west to the Mediterranean Sea, where they sail 60 miles further west to the eastern coast of Cyprus in the port city of Salamis. They had come to the island of Cyprus, the place of Barnabas called home, to intentionally take the gospel to the people of Cyprus. The gospel had left the relatively tight-knit geography between Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, Caesarea, and Antioch and had been cast off into the sea for a broader and more diverse audience. Their first stop in Salamis was in the synagogue of the Jews where they proclaimed the word of God. Notice synagogues here is plural. They evidently went to a number of them and spent some time in Salamis doing so going first to the Jews and teaching them in their synagogues 
is the pattern Paul sets here and continues during his missionary campaigns. He is committed to taking the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentiles, as he said in Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And he emphasizes this again later in this chapter, in verses 46 and 47. Paul's view is the church has the obligation to bring the gospel to the Jew first. In Saul's mind, the coming of the gospel to the Gentiles in no way means the abandonment of the gospel mission to the Jews. This is an important point we'll talk about a little further on. Luke also notes for us that John, that is, John Mark, the author of the gospel of Mark, who was just mentioned in Acts chapter 12, had come along to assist them. They head from the east coast of Cyprus to the west coast of the island and walk across the entire distance of about 90 miles. Come to the city of Paphos, the Roman capital of the island of Cyprus. And now the only incident that is spoken of in any detail on the island of Cyprus occurs. It involves a Jewish man named Bar-Jesus, which in Arabic means son of Jesus. While Barnabas and Saul are true prophets of God, proclaiming the message of the Lord, Bar-Jesus is a false prophet, opposing the truth of God's word and his message. Luke describes him twice in verses 6 and 8 as a magician and also points out that he works for the governor of the Roman province here. Clearly the message of the gospel as proclaimed by Barnabas and Saul is believed by the governor. And if he believed it, that would threaten the magician's continued employment. The scene reminds me of Acts chapter 8 and Peter's clash there with Simon the magician. In both cases, an apostle runs into conflict with an established local magician. In both cases, the magician is making money off the locals as he practices his dark craft. And in both cases, the magician is competing with the apostles for the favor of the locals and seeks to selfishly protect his own livelihood without concern for the spiritual rescue of the people. That brings us to verse 9. But Paul, who was, or rather, but Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, intently looked at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people, to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. For the first time, Luke tells us that Saul is also called Paul. And from this time forward, Luke will consistently use Paul to refer to this apostle to the Gentiles. Saul being his Jewish name, Paul his Roman name. The use of Paul as his name is not a rejection of his Jewish heritage and ancestry, but it is likely because of his frequent contact and interaction with non-Jewish Gentiles from this point forward in the book of Acts. Paul, we are told, is filled with the Holy Spirit as he speaks. His words, in effect, are God's words as he proclaims Bar-Jesus to be a son of the devil, an enemy of righteousness and full of deceit and villainy. Bar-Jesus is... 
not the son of Jesus, as his name implies, but is, as Paul says, the son of the devil. The hand of the Lord refers to the power of God being upon the magician, and it causes him to go blind, and in God's mercy, blind for only a time. Just like in Acts 8 with Peter, the power of God displayed in judgment against God's enemies brings the power of the gospel to save those present. As witnesses to God's hand in action, those that are there are saved. The proconsul, the Roman governor, believes and is amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Once again, we see the dramatic juxtaposition of God's judgment on one side and God's salvation on the other. One more thing is important to note here. Like Peter, Paul not only preaches God's word, but Paul is one through whom the Lord does miraculous works. This miracle confirms Paul as an apostle of God. He, like Peter, is God's messenger. And through him, the gospel is making inroads into Gentile hearts. Also until this point, Barnabas has been seen as a, in a strong leadership role. But from now on, Paul is seen as the unquestionable leader of this missionary campaign. Now in the next section, running from verse 16 through verse 41, we have the fullest account in the New Testament of an evangelistic sermon by the Apostle Paul. It's his only recorded sermon given in a Jewish synagogue, although it will be clear there are many Gentiles present in the synagogue as well. Paul's sermon here is biblical, rational, and Christ-centered. In this sermon, Paul unfolds God's redemptive plan across human history and Israel's pattern of ongoing unbelief. And that Israel's rejection of Christ is the occasion for the extension of the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul emphasizes that this was always God's plan and purpose. And Paul demonstrates it from the Old Testament scriptures, from the Psalms, from the prophets Isaiah and Habakkuk. Luke sets the scene for this sermon, starting in verse 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Well, they traveled by boat, almost 200 miles from Cyprus to, from Cyprus to the southern shore of modern Turkey. And they travel a few miles inland to the city of Perga. It is the capital of the province of Pamphylia. It is at this place that John Mark makes the choice to leave Paul and Barnabas. Why he left, we don't know. But the incident will be raised again at the end of chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas made their way about 70 miles, 5 miles further north along a Roman road through the Tarsus Mountains to the city of Pisidian, Antioch. Luke makes sure we know it is Pisidian Antioch and not the Antioch in Syria that had just sent out Paul and Barnabas. Pisidian Antioch was the most important city in the Roman province of Galatia. There is a synagogue in town. And Paul and Barnabas go in and sit down to join them for worship on the Sabbath. Probably a service pretty similar to that of a typical church. Prayers would be offered. 
various scriptures would be read and an explanation of the scripture would be offered. But this day, a providentially prescribed invitation is extended to these visitors, to Paul and to Barnabas, to speak a word of encouragement for the people. Paul doesn't hesitate for one moment. He takes six verses to lay down the history of Israel and then moves right into the gospel of Jesus Christ. Follow along with me as I read this sermon starting in verse 16. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Paul begins his sermon by addressing addressing two groups, the men of Israel and those who fear God. The men of Israel are Jews, and those who fear God, or what are often called God-fearers, they are non-Jews, they are Gentiles like Cornelius who have associated with the synagogue and are attracted to the God of Israel. But they have not submitted to circumcision, and they do not follow the dietary laws. The first part of his sermon, which we've just read, concentrates on the work of God in history from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to John the Baptist. Paul first highlights the gracious way God has dealt with his people Israel. He notes that God chose the fathers of Israel. God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and his 12 sons. And God made this people great while in Egypt. And he redeemed them from slavery by his mighty arm. God mercifully put up with them in the wilderness for 40 years. And then destroyed their enemies and graciously gave them the promised land. Paul acknowledges the period of the judges. Of Saul, their first king that they asked for and who God mercifully removed, and then God graciously raised up David to be that king. And God made a promise to David that one of David's descendants would sit on the throne over Israel forever. And Paul points to Jesus as that Savior, as that Messiah. But before moving on to the work of Jesus, he first talks about the one prophet called to prepare the way for Messiah, of John the Baptist, who announces Messiah's arrival. Having laid down this history of Israel, Paul now interprets for them the meaning of Jesus' coming as he explains the person and work of Christ, the Savior in whom all of God's promises to Israel find their fulfillment. 
Let's pick up his sermon in verse 26. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. You see, Paul in verse 26 makes clear that God sent them with the message of salvation. He goes on in verses 27 to 29 and describes how Jesus' death was the fulfillment of Old Testament promises. In verses 30 to 37, he speaks of Jesus' resurrection from the dead and how it is the fulfillment of God's promises through the Scriptures. Paul specifically quotes Psalm 2, verse 7, Isaiah 55, verse 3, Psalm 16, verse 10, and Habakkuk 1, verse 5. And what a coincidence! The same themes Peter emphasized in his sermons are emphasized here by Paul with respect to Jesus' death. Those in Jerusalem and their rulers failed to understand the prophets. They did not recognize Jesus and so fulfilled the words of the prophets by killing a perfectly righteous and innocent man. With respect to Jesus' resurrection, Paul points out they executed Jesus, but God, yes, but God raised him from the dead. God did not allow the sinfulness of men to stand against his son. Also, Paul points to the appearance of the resurrected Christ and challenges his listeners to verify the truthfulness of what he says by talking to those who are now his witnesses to the people. Paul challenges them to check it out. These witnesses, along with Isaiah 55 and Psalm 16, are testimony to the fact that unlike King David, this king... This body of Jesus did not see corruption. It did not decay. But rather, it was raised in glory. These scriptures quoted here by Paul did not find their fulfillment in David, but rather found their fulfillment in David's greater son, in Jesus Christ. He is raised from the dead with an incorruptible body. He is alive and seated at the right hand of God right now, today. Now we come to verse 38. And in the final part of Paul's sermon, 
He focuses on the saving work of the Savior and presses his case upon those who are listening. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Paul gives both an invitation and a warning here. Again, we see the pairing of the gracious and merciful offer of God for salvation along with the judgment of God that comes from refusing to trust in Him. The invitation is one of forgiveness of sins and freedom from bondage to it. Paul makes it clear, it is only available through this man, for it is by him that salvation comes and no one else. Notice his invitation in verse 39. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything. Everyone who believes, not just Jews, not just God-fearers, not just Samaritans, not just those in Cyprus or Galatia, but all nations and all people, all the world without distinction are people that are justified, accepted, and counted as righteous in God's sight by coming to Jesus Christ. This holy and righteous representative died a cursed death on the cross that was for me, that was for his children. In love, he died in our place as our substitute and his sacrifice was acceptable to God. There is no sin so great that Christ's sacrifice cannot forgive. And there is no deed so good that it can pay the price for your sin. Paul is telling them that the law of Moses has nothing to justify the sinner. We cannot keep it. It cannot save. It can, however, identify our sin. And so doing, point us to our need for the only perfect and representative sacrifice for our sin, the God-man Jesus Christ. That is why there is no other way of salvation. And that is why if you reject the only way to be saved, you are left with a terrifying expectation of judgment. Verse 41, where Paul quotes from Habakkuk 1 verse 5, was originally given by the prophet Habakkuk to the southern kingdom of Israel, to Judah, regarding the soon-to-come invasion by the superpower of the day of Babylon. The Jews in those days could not imagine the temple in Jerusalem being destroyed, their king being killed, the Israelites removed from the promised land. But in God's judgment, it happened. Likewise, Paul warns these in the synagogue against responding in unbelief. They were told in the Old Testament that there are witnesses to testify to Christ. Paul had proclaimed it to them on this day. Beware, Paul says, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. But what happens next? Verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. 
And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For as the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul directly quotes Isaiah chapter 49, verse 6. Well, as Paul and Barnabas exit the synagogue, the response is initially encouraging. The crowd requests they come back the next Sabbath and share again. It seems many Jews and some devout Gentiles have believed as they are following Paul and Barnabas. Word spread during the following week of the message Paul brought the previous Sabbath. And now on this, the next Sabbath, the whole city has turned out to hear the word of the Lord. But when some unbelieving Jews saw the large crowd gathered, they were jealous and disputed with Paul. And unable to win the day reasoning from Scripture, they reviled him and turned to personal attacks against him. Paul and Barnabas respond boldly, telling these Jews that it was divinely appointed and necessary that the gospel would be proclaimed to the Jews first. When verse 46 says... They thrust it aside. It means these rebels against God and His Messiah have brought judgment upon themselves and in effect declared themselves to be unworthy of eternal life. They themselves have chosen to remain in a state of spiritual death. As a consequence, Paul and Barnabas say they are turning to the Gentiles. They are not saying they will never preach the gospel to Jews again. Rather, they are saying the rejection of the gospel has become the way for extending the gospel to the Gentiles. Thus, they say this is in. Thus, they say this is the Lord's command, and then they quote the Old Testament from Isaiah forty nine six. I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. As Jewish leaders are slandering the good news about Jesus. Paul and Barnabas are fulfilling the calling of God's servant through Isaiah to be a light to the Gentiles. Paul is not identifying himself as the servant. Jesus is that servant. Paul knows that. And Luke himself identifies Jesus as the servant in Luke chapter 2 verse 32. When the aged Simeon has seen the infant Jesus, he says, light for the revelation to the Gentiles as well as for the glory of Israel. Paul is, however, identifying himself with the mission of this servant, with the servant of the Lord, with Jesus Christ, as he takes the gospel, not just to the Jews, but to the world at large. In quoting from Isaiah 49, Paul is also making the point that God never planned for salvation to be exclusively for the Jews. Paul only quotes the last half of verse 6 in Isaiah 49. So let's go back and get just a little more context. Listen as I read verses 5 and 6 of Isaiah 49 together. 
Verse 5. And now the Lord says, He who brought me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. You see, the servant's mission is to bring Israel back to God, to bring Jews to God. He continues, For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. The prophet Isaiah says, God speaking through him, it's just too small a thing, too light a thing that God's servant, his Messiah, would only bring Israel back. That he would only save the Jews. That's not a big enough task. God has given his servant something much more significant to accomplish. And that brings us to the passage Paul quotes. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the end of the earth. This bigger and more glorious task is why Christ came. For God so loved the world that he gave his unique son. And it's not just that the servant would be the one to communicate salvation to the world, but rather that this servant would be in his own person the salvation that not only the Jews needed, but the salvation that the world needs. And so be the light for all nations. So they might escape the darkness. God's love is so big, His grace so glorious, His mercy so forgiving, that it must encompass and invade all peoples and nations. Yes, the entire world. In God's purpose and plan set forth before the foundation of the world, the Christ, Jesus Christ, from the beginning, was always going to be a light for the Gentiles that would bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He is the seed that crushes the head of Satan and has victory over sin and death. Remember what the Lord Jesus said to Ananias shortly after Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9. Our Lord says this right before Ananias was to go and get Paul, this great persecutor of the Jews. The Lord says, Go, for he, Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Paul's mission will take the name of Christ and salvation in his name to the ends of the earth, and in so doing, Paul will in large measure launch on the broadest scale the mission Christ gave to his apostles in Acts 1, verse 8, to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. It is the Lord, the risen Jesus himself, seated at the right hand of the Father, who has commanded this to happen, who made it happen to the Gentiles in Caesarea, to those in Antioch in Syria, to those in Cyprus, and now in Antioch, in Pisidia. And he did it through Paul and Barnabas. They are his instruments. And it is the living and active Jesus Christ who is making salvation happen today through his church, through you and I and God's people. Not just here, but in India, in China, in Africa, again, to the ends of the earth. It's an amazing, incredible, and miraculous thing Christ has done and is doing in the hearts of sinners everywhere. Well, there are two responses to this message. 
Look at verse 48 with me for the first reaction. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. And now the second reaction. But the Jews, verse 50, but the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. The Gentiles are overwhelmed at the grace of God. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The sovereignty of God is all over these Gentile passages. From Peter coming to Caesarea, to the church in Jerusalem sending Barnabas to Antioch, to Barnabas going and getting Paul from Tarsus, to the church at Antioch serving Paul, sending Paul and Barnabas, to the conversion of the proconsul in Cyprus, to Paul being asked to speak in the synagogue about the salvation of these Gentiles. It is all in the purpose and plan of God. And it is by His hand. The ultimate cause of the faith of these Gentiles in Pisidian Antioch is God. These Gentiles share an eternal life. Not because they are better than those Jews who rejected the offer. Because they are not. They are not more moral. More, they are not more moral. They are not smarter. They are not better people or more insightful. It is because of God, who in His sovereign mercy and grace appointed them to eternal life before the foundation of the world. Notice verse 49 again. And a word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the unbelieving Jews moved from words against Paul and Barnabas to physically forcing them out of town. This seems not so much like a mob action as it was an official expulsion by the civic and religious leaders of the region. But Paul and Barnabas are not done. They shook off the dust from their feet, a symbol of God's indictment and judgment that Jesus himself practiced, and moved on to bring the gospel to another town, to Iconium. Meanwhile, the believers left behind are filled with joy and the Holy Spirit in their newfound faith in the Lord. Well, we can take away from Paul's sermon in Acts 13 a number of lessons. First, faithful gospel preaching must proclaim Jesus Christ, crucified and raised from the dead for the, for the forgiveness of sins according to the Scriptures. The apostles don't preach morality. They don't preach social reform. They don't preach political change. They proclaim what God has done in space and time history, through Jesus Christ to save sinners. Nothing else will do. Second, the Old Testament relentlessly points to God's work of saving sinners through Jesus Christ, through the Messiah. Peter preached it, and now we see Paul preaching it. When we read the Old Testament, we can learn much about our Savior. He is there in shadow and type in sacrifices and in prophecy. Jesus told us so in Luke 24. Third, 
Faithful gospel preaching calls its hearers to respond in faith. In faith to Jesus Christ. All are invited to believe that Christ died for our sins. But we must come. And we can only come by trusting in Him. However, take note. Not to believe in Christ is to reject Him. And the life that is found in Him. And to commit oneself to remain in a state of curse and death. Paul did not hide this truth from his hearers. Faithful preaching must woo sinners to Christ and also warn them of judgment. Fourth, preaching is only effective when the Holy Spirit works in the hearts of men, bringing spiritually dead sinners to faith and new life in Christ. We should pray fervently to God that he would open hearts and minds to receive the gospel. Fifth, you cannot be, you cannot be neutral when it comes to the gospel. The gospel is the means of saving some, but it also confirms others in their sin. We must not be surprised or think we are doing something wrong when we face hostility for being faithful to God's word. The hostility is the world's expression of anger and rebellion against God. We must remember, it is the Lord they are rejecting, not us. Sixth and last, even intense and organized persecution cannot stop the gospel. In God's providence, persecution has often proved to be just the opportunity God uses for many who are lost in their sins to hear the word of salvation that is found in Christ alone. A word we are privileged to share with a lost world. May faithful gospel preaching characterize Omaha Bible Church and may you as God's people have a deep hunger for it. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, how glorious it is to be able to read and think about and see these experiences of the Apostle Paul and Barnabas through the Word of God. We thank you for the ministry of the Lord Jesus, for the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises concerning him. We thank you for the way in which the gospel has gone out to the Gentiles, even for the way it has come to us. Oh God, deliver us from a coldness and a hard-heartedness and a lack of interest in the word of God and in spreading the gospel. Instead, give us by your grace men and women who have been appointed to eternal life, that they might come into the joy of salvation through Jesus. And if there is someone here this morning, Lord, who has not yet come to Christ, may they at this very moment, through the Holy Spirit working in them, lift their hearts to you, acknowledge their sin before you, repent and trust in Christ and his death for them and receive the free gift of eternal life. I thank you, Lord, that you loved us in such a special way, that you have saved us, and that you have done this for your glory. Remind us of that often, Lord. May we be ever humble before you. All this we pray in our Savior Jesus' name. Amen.